from Galatians chapter 1, beginning at verse 11. I'm going to read, um, it's somewhat lengthy, down through the end of chapter 1, because it all goes together, and uh, it's part of Paul's defense of his ministry and of his gospel, part of his travelogue, but uh, we'll be focusing today on verses 18 through 24 primarily. Galatians 1, verse 11. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral tra traditions. But when he who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him fifteen days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying." Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Let us pray. Our glorious King, our Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would speak, that you would proclaim your word, that you would help us to understand these things. As Jesus says to those around him, he who has ears, let him hear. Father, I pray that in our reading and hearing the scriptures that we would not just listen, but we would truly hear. And Father, we would not just look at these things, but we would truly see. We ask in Christ's name, amen. My dad and Thomas Jefferson had at least two things in common. Each married a woman born in Virginia. But the other thing they had in common is not so mundane, but it is true, sadly. Both thought that the Apostle Paul was one of the worst things that ever happened to the church. Jefferson wrote to a friend of his, according to the historian Stephen Waldman, and he wrote about the authors of the Gospels, and Jefferson said they were, quote, ignorant, unlettered men who, quote, laid a groundwork of vulgar ignorance, of things impossible, of superstitions, fanaticisms, and fabrications. Of this band of dupes and impostors, Jefferson goes on to say, Paul was the first 
corrupter of the doctrines of Jesus. Now, my dad is not as famous as Jefferson. My dad did write a book on how to uh, do the chemistry of concrete and did not write on the Apostle Paul, but in my discussions with him, which were short because they were tension-filled, on Paul, Paul, he felt pretty much the same about Paul. That Paul somehow got it wrong. If we didn't have Paul, the church would have been better off. If we just stuck with the Gospels and Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, we would have been better off as a church. And this is basically the same accusation that's made against Paul, I think, in the middle of the first century. That Paul's teaching was, as a preacher, he was second rate. And that his gospel was secondhand. That somehow he got something mixed up in the gospel that and then either deliberately or mistakenly misapplied what he was taught. And that without the authority from Jerusalem, of the Jerusalem apostles, his gospel was either incomplete or it was invalid. And we know some of these things implicit in the book of Galatians. But there were those who considered Paul an antinomian against the law of Moses and that his gospel therefore could not be true. And so they see, and I I think you can see somewhat in Paul's writing that he is addressing what others felt in him was a tension between his teaching and the teachings of Jesus. And through this autobiographical travelogue that we have been investigating in chapter 1, Paul responds to these accusations. In verse 11, as we looked at, he denies that he preached a gospel made up by himself, or for that matter, by anyone else, because he says, it was not, I was not taught it, but my, I received it through a revelation that it was a div- of divine origin. And therefore, again, he denies that the gospel was something that he received by mere, a mere human being, but that he received it from Jesus Christ himself. And in verses 13 through 17, we see that he denies that he was taught the gospel, that he had to have that certificate of authentication or um, perhaps that recommendation from the Jerusalem apostles that his gospel was authentic or that he had read a tract or that he had been witnessed to by another Christian and thereby became a disciple and sat under the feet of someone who taught him. And in the section from 18 through 24, he denies that he has had any contact with the apostles for this very purpose, to gain from them an authority, to gain a stamp of approval from them for his gospel. Now certainly there is a lot in this passage, particularly um, in this section 13 through 24, that we could speak of this morning. I was uh, looking at some of these things and looking at some of the the commentaries 
uh, on this passage, and it, it's somewhat amazing the lengths that some of the authors go through to, to talk about things that, to me, for the message of Galatians are somewhat of rabbit trails. At least that's what we call them here at the Resource Center when our students get us to go down a path instead of the one you want to teach. And there are those, um, I was somewhat amazed at John Eady. I like John Eady's commentary. Um, writing in the 1850s, he spent 43 of his first 100 pages of his commentary talking about why and the wherefores of James being the Lord's brother which is mentioned here by Paul, could Mary have not been a virgin her entire life but had children, 43 out of 100 pages. We could also speak of the things that we see in here, and they're very grand, of, of Paul, and I think it's the principle of first mention. If, if this is the earliest book of Paul, the first time that Paul uses the phrase, in Christ, a, a glorious phrase, but... Here it is, in Christ, in the middle of his defense. Or using the objective word, the faith, with the article in front of, what is the faith of the churches? Or we could explore, as some of the commentaries did, the passage that was mentioned in Sunday school this morning, the servant song of Isaiah 49, 1 through 7, and the fact that Paul may have been alluding to Isaiah 49 when he says in verse um, 15, but when he had set me apart even from my mother's womb. And you couple that with the testimony of Barnabas and Paul in Acts 13 where they say of themselves, they make this statement, And I've lost it, but the context is that he had, yeah, sorry, here it is, 47. For thus the Lord has commanded us, Paul and Barnabas say, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. Looking at Isaiah 49 as speaking of their ministry. Those are things which would be good to look into. Things which would be things that we as students of the scriptures could look into. But as our brother pray, prayed that God would help me in those things that God had laid on my heart, what I saw in this passage was that the message of Paul to the Galatians is moving from a negative tone to a positive tone. It's moving to where, yes, Paul is trying to meet those insinuations and those falsifications about his ministry, about the, what he preached. And so, yes, he is trying to remove all of those barriers. But in here, in the telling of it, it's like he can't help but let it be known the transforming power of the gospel, not only to his own life, but to the lives of those hearers. Those who heard and received the faith of God, received that gospel. And so in my message this morning, that's what I want to emphasize is that transforming power that we see coming out. Yes, we will mention these things of, of Paul and his traveling. And there are things, again, 
trying to square these with the book of Acts, knowing that you know, Paul is leaving certain things out in his autobiography that Luke puts in and helps us fill that in. But how do we know that and how do we, how do we square all of those things together? And yet the story that we get, the, the feeling that I got anyway, was of the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul, again, trying to tear down these barriers, met great opposition. And I tried to imagine what would it be like to, to a man um, who what heard about a man or woman, uh, it doesn't matter, who, who heard about Paul from knowing his past, having heard about his persecuting the church of Jesus Christ before his conversion, now coming to their town to preach the gospel. And we read in Acts 9 that Paul is exactly right here in Galatians of what he said about himself. We read, Paul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord before conversion. And then after conversion, it says, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. See, there, there was this uncertainty. There, there was this time when there okay, what do, I, what do I now think? Would they speak a bit against Paul now? Would they reject his gospel? Would they dismiss him as a fraud? I have no doubt that the antagonizers, those who came to Galatia to try to dissuade the followers of Paul's gospel to reject his ministry and his message, set up some of those barriers. That they did say things that we see implied here, that he was second rate, that he did have a confusion over the gospel. And I have no doubt that they said that if he got his gospel from the apostles, then he has now disavowed all Jewish legal requirements that they felt went with that gospel. And they perhaps had used the names of some of the apostles, perhaps Peter and James, as an authority for their allegations against Paul. But Paul states here clearly for us that he never consulted, in verse 16, I did not consult with flesh and blood. And that phrase is a little enigmatic to us, but it essentially means and emphasizes the frailty of the human condition, the weakness of man, flesh and blood. And Paul says, I did not consult with flesh and blood, and I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Again, he's not slurring the apostles. He's not putting them down. He does acknowledge that they were before him, that they were apostles in the church, that they did have a message. And yet what he's trying to convey to them is that to have consulted with those apostles after, immediately after his conversion, I believe would have been Paul discrediting God himself. I mean, think about it. If he had come to them 
and said, I need to ask you about this. I believe that I've had a revelation from God directly of the gospel. What would their response have been? If they truly believed that God's word was truth, that his revelation was sufficient, then how could they have answered? It would have been discredit to them if they had answered. If God speaks, who is there who is a higher authority? In his commentary, uh, Dr. Piper of Greenville Seminary believes or thinks it's possible that Paul may have had in mind 1 Kings 13, a passage that I've always found frightening, I would say, honestly. It was a passage about a prophet who went a prophet from Judah went to Jeroboam in Bethel to speak to him. And when he was getting ready to, he was finishing that interview, the angel of the Lord spoke to him and said, do not stay in this town. Go out by a different way than you traveled in, but do not stay. And so he began to depart that region but another prophet of the Lord heard that he was in that region from his sons, and he said, I'm going to go find him. I would like to have an interview with him myself. And he tracked him down, and he spoke to the prophet of Judah, and he said to him, I have had a vision from the angel of the Lord that you are to come to my house and to stay and the prophet said, uh, the angel of the Lord told me that I am not to stay. And he said, no, I've had this vision, you come with me. And the scripture tells us that that man had told him a lie. But the prophet of Judah stayed with him that night. And then as he left, following that visit, a lion attacked him and killed him on the way. The prophet should have known that when God speaks, his word is truth, and he does not withdraw it, that he does not speak a lie. And perhaps that was what was going through Paul's mind, perhaps through the apostles' mind, because surely they had heard that Paul was preaching. He was preaching the gospel even to those people whom he had once persecuted. But what do we know for certain in this passage? In verse 18, he tells us, Then after three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. What we do know is there is a time too long and there is a time too short. There is a time of three years that went by in which we know that he had begun, Paul had begun his preaching ministry. He had begun to speak in Damascus and he did not seek that training in Jerusalem. But the time that he spent with Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for Peter, was only 15 days. It was too short for him to have had a comprehensive discipleship training program. That in fact, the language that is used here to become acquainted is the New American Standard. It, it's a literal translation of the word. It means to visit, to become acquainted with, to, to get uh, to know someone. 
Now again, there are the commentators say no doubt Peter and Paul had some discussions about Peter's seeing Christ in the flesh, seeing him, the, the experiences, the things that he said, the things that he did with them as his disciples. So again, I, we, we don't know those things for sure, but what we see here is there's no indication that there was any kind of fallout between Cephas and even James that he sees even more briefly than Peter. That we don't see any letters following Paul to his next preaching destination, letters of dismissal, letters of disapproval. And in fact, what we find implicit here is there was no dispute between the apostles and Paul on his gospel. Now again, there are those who would question, you know, is James an apostle? And if they were apostles, where were the other 11? And where would they have been? And yet, what we see here is that we don't, we don't see here disagreement between those apostles. Perhaps Paul mentioning only Peter and James in this context because he later names them in 1 Corinthians 15 as those who had had seen the risen Christ after his burial and resurrection, both Peter and James saw Christ. And perhaps James had his ministry there ordained by Christ himself at that time. But what we do know is what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Paul says of himself, I am the least of the apostles. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. To Paul, there was no disagreement. To Paul, there was no disapproval. To Paul, there was no tension between them. Whether the apostles preached or he preached, people believed. And that is to the glory of God, that he says of himself, I am what I am. I am a one apostle lately born, and yet, by the grace of God, we preached and you believed. Now, to be sure, outward proofs add nothing to the gospel. And we have to be careful that we don't read Paul particularly as kind of a, uh, what would you say, a roadmap for all of us. All of us who have come to faith in Christ have a salvation story, but not of a, all of us have had a Damascus Road experience. The light and the sound and the fury. Uh, we have to be careful in a day and age, at least in, in my growing up as a believer. Uh, I was involved in a parachurch ministry, and I do thank God for the men who taught me the scriptures, who sat with me at 6 a.m. Friday mornings in a dungy old dorm that my dad said the only thing it lacked to be looked like a prison was the bars on the windows. I learned to open the scriptures and read for myself about Christ. But one of the hallmarks of the 
meetings that this organization had was testimonies, personal testimonies. And sometimes, yes, I think uh, what our brother has said over the years was true, that sometimes it was like one testimony was trying to top the other as to how bad someone was before they came to Christ. And so we must be careful that a testimony is not a proof of the gospel. A testimony does not change the gospel in any way or make it more glorious or less glorious, but they do and can remove barriers. And when we read them and restrict ourselves to reading about what happened to the Apostle Paul, we can see how those things happen. Paul says of himself, now I'm writing to you and I can assure you before God. He calls God as his witness that I am not lying. I am speaking the truth. But his argument is that the gospel is true. That it is regardless of the title of the one who presents it, regardless of the time, regardless of the season, the gospel is the one, the gospel is, has the authority, not man. The gospel has the authority, not the church. And regardless of the attacks upon it, it's the gospel that is true. And so we see, just as we see here in Galatia, there are some inside the church, even today, who think that we need to do something different. There is the part of the church that says we need to go back to the true ancient church, that we need to go back and find the true gospel. Well, the true gospel, as Paul has already said, was already in the church, in the apostles, and the revelation given to him by Christ. But there are others in the church who say we need to have a new age. We need to emerge as where it gets its name, the emerging church. That there is a new age of the church emerging from the corruption in the church age as they see it. And yet what the church needs is just what Paul was pointing back to. We go back to the revelation and the authority of the gospel as given by the authority of Jesus Christ himself. It is not in man, it is found in God's word. And there are some outside the church, just like Jefferson, who want to uncover the real Jesus or tell us, quote-unquote, the secret of Jesus. And that is, in fact, what Stephen Waldman says that Jefferson was trying to do. He says that he, in fact, describes Jefferson as the pious infidel, because Jefferson had a zeal for Jesus. But this is what he thought he was doing. Waldman says his goal was to, quote, justify the character of Jesus against his pseudo-followers in order to rescue his character. He saw himself in his own version of the Bible as rescuing Jesus from Paul and those like Paul. And yet what we have here, the testimony of Paul, is that the revelation given by Christ is the authority. And we know that when we 
read the scriptures, if we will read the scriptures in the way that scripture represents itself, that scripture interprets scripture. It interprets itself if man will only examine it. Paul does say faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But how can they hear unless they have a preacher? And so he says the gospel has its own authority and Paul can stand confidently before these opponents of his and declare as he does again in 1 Corinthians 15, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That is what he delivered that the message has authority because it points us to the one who has all authority on heaven and earth, Jesus Christ. And then Paul says of himself later in that passage, by the grace of God I am what I am. I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. See, his glory... And any glory that he may have had is to God. Any thing that came to him, any way that people would look at him, he pointed to God and said, by the grace of God, I have been given this ministry by the grace of God. He enabled me to carry it out. And then we see that we, the transforming power of the gospel goes even further. In verse 22, And I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing. He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they were glorifying God because of me. Josh Moody says that one of the background colors in the painting of Galatians is this issue of face, flesh, and humanity. And I, I think that's true. We, 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 we all do this, do we not? Do we not, when we, even by looking in the mirror, why do we look in the mirror? We ask ourselves, will I look good to others? I, I already know the answer to that question. I don't know why I do look in the mirror. What will people think of me, we ask? How will they react to me? How will they think of me as a person, as a Christian, in my job, what I'm doing? And I think it's only natural that Paul brings these things up. I was still unknown by sight in the churches of Judea. He had been in Jerusalem. And there are those who say, yeah, but why did he say Judea? Well, in the country round about, he had not preached in all of those churches. He had gone to Tarsus for a while. And he had gone to Syrian Antioch because Barnabas said, hey, there's some people over here who have heard the gospel and they're responding, you're needed over here. And we do know from 1 Corinthians 12 that Paul says, at least I believe he's speaking of himself, he had spent 14 years in other parts of the world not sure what he's doing there. Perhaps Christ said, you're not quite ready for full time here. 
But the people did not know Paul by sight, but they kept hearing. The language is they kept on hearing. It's a continual thing. That this one who had persecuted the church was now preaching the faith. And the idea is that he is persecuting the church and now he is preaching the church. He is preaching the faith. He is preaching the gospel that he was given by Christ. That very gospel, that very church, that very thing that he tried to destroy, he is now preaching. And what we see is that people once terrified by the man now heard that God was using that man for his own glory. Lives were being changed. The preaching of the gospel was going forth and people were responding. And so we see a contrast here. We see in verse 23 the word once and then now and then once and then implicitly now. Once he was persecuting, but now he's preaching. Once he was trying to destroy the faith, but now people are glorifying God because of that faith. But there's a further contrast, and it's really the reason for the writing of this letter. Some among the Galatians who had had, as far as we know, when Paul visited them, had had nothing but good from Paul. That he had brought them the gospel, that he had turned their hearts and minds toward the Lord Jesus Christ, but now they were persecuting him. Now they were at least doubting him. And these folks, often Judea, these little churches that had started to grow up as the gospel from Acts 1.8 that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It was starting to spread, starting to make that concentric circle outside of Jerusalem. Those people who had been the object of Paul's persecution now heard that he was preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy and they were glorifying God because of him. In connection with Paul, they were giving glory to God. If only, if only the Galatians would let the reaction of these Judean believers cast out their doubts. If only they would open their hearts and minds to the transforming power of the gospel that was at work in the lives of people in that whole region of the world. They were witnesses of the power of God in Paul's life. They were witnesses of others who had come to see the faith, saving faith of Christ, who had repented of sin and turned again. They knew that God was still in the business of changing lives by his transforming gospel. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for these things that you have revealed to us. We pray that we would be those who search the scriptures to see if these are so. That we would try to 
look into these things, to long to understand these things, long to delight in these things that you have revealed to us, and that you would build us up in the most holy faith, that you would cause us to be people who honor and glorify you in our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please rise for the benediction from Philippians chapter 1. Paul writes to them, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel.